0: Steve wouldn't buy into it, so he made me buy it for 300 bucks, and I bought the first apple and gave it to her. And it popped in my head, wait a minute, what if I put out digital ones and zeros? I realized inside, every color television would think it was color. Nobody knew where I was except my assistant, even my wife. And I went to Hawaii, and I have to get my head into the place to start working,
1: and the challenger exploded. Coming up. Steve Wozniak and the Secrets of Television. Hi, everybody. This is Ben Edwards, and welcome to our inaugural episode. Did I say that right? Inaugural episode of The Culture of Tech. I would like, with this podcast, to explore the interactions between culture and technology. And uh, that link goes back to ancient times. I mean, well, prehistoric times, even. If you think about things like the invention of writing, for example, which was a technology that allowed culture to proliferate far and wide, or say, uh, the invention of fire, which was probably our first technology, or maybe shoelaces were, I have no idea. But uh, we would gather around the fire and tell stories. And similarly, today, with our first guest, Steve Wozniak, who is a friend of mine, we're going to talk about television, which is sort of the modern hearth, the modern fire of the 20th century, anyway. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. I am a freelance journalist. I've been writing about computer and video game history for ooh, about 12 years now. And I run a, a blog called Vintage Computing and Gaming at vintagecomputing.com. And also I have written for publications like The Atlantic, Fast Company, PC World, PC Mag, Macworld, a lot of other places. Over the years, In my reportings on the history of technology, I have encountered some incredible people, just incredible, cool stories, and usually they're locked away behind a a telephone interview. I thought it'd be fun to talk to those same kind of people uh, in a podcast setting, and we're going to talk to people mostly over Skype, just because uh, I can't really get people in person very easily where I live. I'm also a musician. I started a website called requestasong.com in 2002. It was a pioneering web music service and art project. And uh, me and my brother did that. And we did that till 2005. So I've been doing music ever since as a hobby. And this is going to be a fun venue for some of my music, which I call tech songs, which are songs related to technology or you know, songs related to what we're going to be talking about. So with that out of the way, Let's get on with it. All right, so today on The Culture of Tech, we have a man who needs no introduction, a man whose invention sits in almost every home in America. And yes, I'm talking about the universal remote control. (laughs) Welcome to The Culture of Tech, Waz. It's an honor to have you here today.
0: Hi, very nice to talk to you.
1: I thought it'd be fun today to talk about a topic like television because it's a thread that's run through your life over the years. I was wondering, do you remember the first time you ever saw a TV set as a kid?
0: Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, even though it was long ago, you know, it was like sitting in my parents' bedroom, and uh, it was black and white, and then we moved up to a color. I'm pretty sure they did not have one when I was born. They probably got it when you know I was like maybe six or so, maybe even maybe even a little older. What were some of your favorite TV shows as a kid? There was one where they went kind of under the sea, I think, in a submarine, and they had spaceships, and I liked anything with spaceships. Um, Oh yeah. And later in life, oh my gosh. Mission Impossible, I just love, you know, solving mysteries that are kind of insolvable. It's almost like the technique of hacking, a hacking mentality. We want to get around a system. Um, I was
1: reading an interesting story about you building a TV jammer as a prank. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Sure. I mean, I had a ham radio license since I was 10 years old, but Mm -hmm. eh, the parts to build, it was a little tricky to wire up high-frequency transmitters that could transmit on television channels. A transistors that you could buy, like at Radio Shack, were just getting up to fifty megahertz. Mm-hmm. So they were kind of a little on the low side of what you could do, and and I'd buy those and just you know basically grab some parts out of a transistor radio, wind a coil on my own, maybe out of a um a uh, shoestring, coat, coat hanger, yeah, coat hanger, whatever was around, something a little bit solid, you know, not a coat hanger, but real thick wire. I'd strip off the insulation, wind coils, and. And um, made a little TV jammer that was so tiny, and I like to I like to make things tinier and tinier, more compact. So what I used was a nine volt battery top. I took apart a part of nine volt battery and used its top. And underneath the top, I soldered the pieces in place. Wow. Then I could plug a nine volt battery right into that top, and I had my power. Huh. So it was tiny. It was a handheld thing. Yes, but I like to I like to use in two parts. One part to do two jobs at once, and And uh, it was so it was efficient. And I went around my dorm in my first year of college and and um, it kind of blacked out any TV it was near. But those were all black and white TVs in 1968. Mm -hmm. So I went to the one color TV we had on campus was in the basement of a girl's dorm, Libby Hall. And Mm -hmm. we'd go there at night to watch color TV. A few people would. So I went over there and tried my TV jammer. And instead of blacking out the TV, it just fuzzed it up. And eventually I could play with people's body, getting them to tune the controls and move their hand back and it would fail and move their hand forward. It would work. And and I had a lot of fun, got people to stand up on chairs, holding an antenna in the air, putting a hand in the middle of the TV, lots of things to make it work.
1: (laughs) That's really funny. (laughs) At this time in 1968, was there any idea in popular culture or sci fi to use the TV as anything other than to watch, you know, live action and
0: um not really too much in popular culture although somewhere around that time frame i think there was magnavox had a little tv game with a rifle and you could shoot at the tv um ralph bear designed it
1: yeah that was 72 so so that came out
0: that was Mm -hmm. a little later yeah a little later um but nothing that i knew of now of course in in research with a ton of money and especially wanting to do it you could make up, uh, for example, there was a, a game that was on a PDP one. I don't know if that was even in this time frame.
1: That was uh, yeah. I just wrote an article about that uh, Space War that came out in '62.
0: Yeah, and I got to play that because I'd ride my bike over to Stanford um, um, Artificial Intelligence Center, and they had it going there, and I I'd, I'd play it, and it was uh, you know a little weak. But that's what you can do if you have a lot of money and a very expensive computer as a resource. Yeah. But not it's not like pop you said popular culture. Yeah. Popular culture means yeah, you know, something kind of that's available to everyone.
1: Mm-hmm. And if you were riding your bike to Stanford, you were pretty young then, right?
0: Yeah, not only that, I lived a pretty long ways from it. That was a long bike yeah. ride. Oh. <laughs> I wasn't that no, I wasn't that young. I was kind of like in my second year of college. Oh, okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe I don't think I did it in high school.
1: So I was thinking about this TV thread. Um, how well did you understand how a TV worked in the early seventies? Did you know Everything. I knew everything.
0: I, could, I knew everything. I could repair them. We had an incredible electronics class at, at Homestead High School. Incredible. I mean, better, better than local colleges as far as the equipment that we had, and we learned every little bit of TVs. And we got in there, man. That's why I got jolted by a flyback transformer once. Yeah. that Threw me back five feet. <laughs>
1: but, um, Did you say, yeah. hey, there's a prank in this somewhere?
0: No, no. <laughs> okay. I don't think I ever pranked anybody with that. Hurt him. I. I I felt it shock. I know I might have. I might have played around a little. Yeah. That
1: reminds me, I was asking people on Twitter just before we did this if they had a question for you. And someone said, Did you ever play a prank on Steve Jobs himself instead of with him?
0: Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Now he became sort of so serious a person not wanting to talk about old fun days, going to concerts, playing pranks after we started Apple. I don't think I played any pranks on him after that period of time. Oh, except one time when his, his car was parked in a uh, handicapped, I kind of called the cops. I said, I was Andy Hertzfeld. And there's this car parked out here and, and the cops came, they couldn't give it a ticket because it wasn't painted the right color blue, the handicap <laughs> sign. And that's, that's true. But, wow. but that's, that's hardly, that's not a very worthy prank. But when we were younger, um, for ex- I'd play pranks on him, not too often because we were really good friends. We'd play pranks together more often, but one time, one night we were sitting at pay phones, testing out blue boxes at our old high school by the, you know, around midnight at the, uh, cafeteria and he's on one phone and I'm on the other, we're passing the blue box back and forth. And I like to play with the networks and talk to operators and figure out what I can talk them into. So Steve's talking to some friend and I did an emergency interrupt to him from the name Alex Bell. Who was the name of the chief special agent of the phone company? mo Steve hung up that phone and said, said, They're here, we have to run. And I start, I just smiled at him. I said, No, they're not. He says, Yeah, they're here. <laughs>
1: Well, let's go back to talk about your knowledge of TV, because we got off on a tangent, which is that, did that help you create the Apple One, your intimate knowledge of how TV works? Well, yes,
0: it had a role, but that wasn't it. I didn't sit down and say, I never said, let's design a computer and came up with the Apple One. I went up a, a stepping stone. It was when I saw Pong in a bowling alley. I realized that a television could be the output device that I could never afford in a computer. So I built my own Pong game and eventually designed Breakout for Atari. Yeah. And, and then I saw six computers in, in the country. Six computers were on a thing called the ARPANET. This is long before the Internet. Yeah, Six computers. And I had to do it. And I knew how to design anything with digital chips. So I built myself a terminal where I could type on a keyboard to a computer in Boston. And the computer in Boston could type back to my TV set. This is the TV terminal you created. Yes. Yeah, so the TV started out started out displaying paddles and balls, if it got the signals at the right time for Pong and, and it worked its way up to this terminal. And then I discovered the Homebrew Computer Club started, and I was there from day one. Steve Jobs never attended it. Don't believe what you see in the movie, him taking me to a club. I was a hero at the club, showing off my computer every two weeks. I even gave away the design for free to everyone there. It's public domain. And uh, this long before Steve even knew the computer existed. I was helping other people build it. Well, how did I build the computer the first day of the club? I just—I took home a data sheet for a microprocessor. I'd let them slip by. Yeah, I was designing the hottest product of the day. Like, you know, today you might say it's the latest, greatest smartphone, you know, the iPhone X or something. Well, I was designing those products, the handheld scientific calculators for Hewlett-Packard without a college degree. And I was taking on all these interesting design jobs all over the place. I designed the first hotel movie system for a guy from Hollywood. I didn't know that. Oh, oh, yes, I was. And every time I did these designs, I would charge five cents. Five that was my, cents. Mm. Yeah, I could even take that back to college days when I would type term papers for people all night long till 630 in the morning and I would charge five cents.
1: You know, was if you put that five cents into Bitcoin back then, it would be worth five billion dollars now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Just back then. But, um, yeah. So so anyway, uh, so so anyway, I gave away the computer at the club and and um and, and Steve Jobs, finally, he, he came into town. I said, you got to come down and see this. It's the opposite of what the movie shows. And I was, I mean, I was a hero at the club with my computer. And he came down and saw all the interest in it. And he said, we should start a company. But he didn't really think of a computer company at first. He, they go back and put different images on him. He didn't think of a computer company. He thought he had been used to selling surplus electronic parts. You can buy a switch. You can buy a connector and sell it for, you know, 50 times as much if you know what you're doing. And he was good at that. So he said let's build a pc board for all these people that want to build your computer they already had my design and we'll build a pc board to make it easier for them well it'll cost us 20 bucks we'll sell it for 40 bucks and mm, i had one problem with that i starting a company when i worked at hewlett-packard i was going to work there forever because i believed engineers were the finest people in the world totally. the most important people in the world hewlett-packard was not only full of engineers We were designing, back in those days, Hewlett-Packard made all the equipment with dials and knobs and buttons that engineers used to test products. We were building things for engineers, so we knew the market as well as marketing people, you know, what was good, what was bad. So I was going to be Hewlett-Packard for life, and I would not risk my job at Hewlett-Packard by starting a company behind them. So I proposed it to HP, and they turned me down for the first of five times. And now Steve Jobs and I were in business making a little PC board, with the few hundred dollars we could gain. I didn't have a bank account. I just I sold my HP 65 calculator for 500 bucks. I only got 250 for it, and that was enough. But that was enough to pay somebody to design a PC board that Steve Jobs and I could sell. I would I had two goals in my life, to be an engineer and be a teacher, and I did become a public school teacher for 8 years.
1: Yeah, I remember that. That was in the 90s maybe early 90s yes Yes, it was Mm -hmm. 93 to 2001
0: Mm -hmm. and so i i pleaded with steve for two hours i drove him up to cotati california it's a two-hour drive and two hours driving back pleaded with him to that we we should give the first apple one to liza Loop, who was a teacher who would take them into roll it into elementary schools and show students what a computer was but steve wouldn't steve wouldn't buy into it so he made me buy it for three hundred bucks, and I bought the first Apple and gave it to her. <laughs> you bought the first Apple. No, no, no. His belief from the beginning wasn't motivated by the social benefits. His money, he was trying to make the money as he he always did mm-hmm. for five years. He'd come into town once a year and turn something I'd invented into money.
1: I was going to say about the Apple One, which is funny. Someone offered to sell me an Apple One in two thousand seven for thirteen thousand dollars. I'm like, well, I don't have thirteen thousand dollars. And today, you know, one sells for like $900,000 now. I
0: got one on eBay around that time for $40,000 to donate to one of the museums, maybe the Computer History Museum.
1: Well, that was awesome. I was wondering if you have just a big surplus, a stock, stockpile of no. Apple 1s you can, you can give me. No.
0: My, no, as a matter of fact, my own personal Apple 1, my personal Apple 2, my personal Apple 3, my personal Lisa, my personal Macintosh. Mac, um, I gave them all to a college I spent a year at, De Anza College in Cupertino and they have it in a display case. Wow. Run into them as far away as Croatia and Moscow. Wow. And you only produced like 200, right? Well, we did two runs, but I think we only actually made about 150 by, that's what I estimated back in the time, probably 106, got made or 125, 150 could have been delivered at the most, something like that.
1: let me direct us back to the TV set. Uh, Lee Felsenstein, who worked for Osborne and other, those things, he designed the SAL-20. He, I think he contested that you may not have been the first to make a computer that hooks to a regular TV set. He thinks maybe one of his was the first. What do you think about that?
0: Um, every single computer that was being introduced, including the ones he was working on for, for um – whatever the name of the company was, processor technology or whatever. Mm -hmm. Those computers were all standard, a big metal front plate, a face plate. And really at our club, the Apple II, Apple I that I was showing off was the first time ever. Lee was looking over my shoulder. Everyone's looking over my shoulder. This is the formula, a little board of chips, a keyboard and a video display. And then after the Apple I was shown, the the next uh, computer came Mm -hmm. out was the processor technology, Sol, the Sol Sol 20 or whatever. It had it and it was based around a TV. The formula had been given away. And then the third one was the Apple II, but no computer ever again came out with a with a front panel. It really went away that quickly.
1: Yeah, the Apple one was keyboard interface only, no front panel. That that was the big breakthrough, right?
0: Oh yes. Oh yes, yes, because um it saved a lot of the costs and the mechanical difficulties and time and assembly. And you don't want big parts in the way. All you want is little chips doing calculation. But there were a lot of factors. It wasn't really possible to do a useful computer until microprocessors were capable at a low price, which they were the summer of 75, and the dynamic memories, the 4K dynamic memory had to come out. All the other companies like Processor Technology, like Lee did, those computers all came out, the Altair, the InSci, Processor Tech, they all came out based on static RAM, and here's why. Intel would put out a microprocessor and a data sheet. A data sheet could never show dynamic memory because you'd have all this refresh circuitry. What's that all about? How do I do it? And there's so many ways to do it, it just wouldn't make sense. So they could only show static memory that costs four times as much. So everybody used static RAMs. They just copied the Intel data sheet. Me, I would never ever in my life copy any design. I'd only think out what is the optimal best way to make it that other people aren't doing. And Dynamic memory made the 4K computer, that's enough to run a programming language, made it extremely affordable for a common person, not just a small business.
1: That's fascinating that you had thrift in design. I mean, you wanted the simplest, easiest, cheapest way to do things.
0: All, all the way from my, my high school days when there were no computers and no books on computers around me. And I taught myself from knowing some digital logic stuff from some elementary school projects. Um, How do you take logic and design a computer? I got a manual on a computer in high school and I worked and worked and worked. I started teaching myself over and over designing the same computer and then designing more computers over and over, always trying to think of ways to save parts. And I came up with a lot of techniques that were never in any books. You couldn't put them in a book. So I knew I was really good at things and I'd always get one set of parts to do two things like, like in refreshing the dynamic memory, you have to have a counter that counts through a sequence Every two thousandths of a second, it has to hit a certain number of of addresses. I already had counters that were counting horizontal and vertical positions on a TV set. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, use the same counter. Don't put in a new set of counters for the refreshing. And then I got one even further with the Apple II, and I said, don't even use a second set of memory. The computer memory gets refreshed by the – you don't have to have a separate memory for the screen like had been the past before. used to be a computer connected to – through a serial cable to a device that puts things on a screen and held its own memory. And yes, you could buy video terminals like that. And they cost cost more than teletypes, and teletypes cost more than cars. Yeah, yeah, they did. So only in a computer club, we're only talking about pretty much, you know, teletypes, or you got a surplus monitor from your work. But they connected on serial cables. No, the real gen... Real genuine thing was by making the memory on the screen the same as the memory on the computer. You could have animation because in software you could program a hundred thousand things to move a second. Wow! Take take this into mind. The Apple II computer. This was going to be the start of a big company. I loved games. I thought games were so important. Nobody's going to want a computer in the home because computers do inventory and sales figures and things like that. Who needs that in the home? Got to play games. Games were the key, and and No, all the arcade games that were being started by Atari in Los Gatos, California, where I live now, that whole industry was every game was black and white, and every game was a hardware design. Get chips and registers to make signals that go up and down and keep the timing and keep track of this. It would take a man year to design a new game to make a pro, typically. And the Apple II was the first time that arcade games were color and the first time they were software. A nine-year-old kid in BASIC could write, you know, vertical equals one, vertical equals two, vertical equals three, and things would move on a screen. Software-based
1: games. That begs the question, did you ever consider making an arcade game based on the Apple II?
0: Well, as soon as I had the Apple II, I'd written the basic. I put in the color plotting commands and all that. I sat down, and I just I rewrote Breakout, a game I designed for Atari. Yeah, I wrote it right there in... Um, um said, on, in basic on the apple II, i took it down to the the computer club and i put in a little command that if you hit control z the paddle said, would always follow the ball but be jiggling so you wouldn't be able to tell that it wasn't your own hand you, you wouldn't <laughs> you would be able to tell it was yeah. so, so i'd sit down somebody like i sat down john draper captain crunch at the yeah. club mm-hmm. and he would sort of never played a game like pong and i said well just move the paddle to do it and and he played the entire thing through and won it. He thought he'd won it, but it was really playing itself. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny.
1: I met John Draper once, and he's he's a funny guy. Um, I was thinking, did you ever see Jerry Lawson at the Homebrew Computer Club? You know, one of the African American
0: pioneers in that era, Fairchild. No, I don't recall. I didn't note. Um, I met people that would come by my computer and talk to me, and some became very good friends for. Long time in you know life and into early Apple days, um, somewhere in high school at the time. Even I'd give them rides down, but I don't remember that name. Just vaguely familiar. You don't remember seeing a big black guy at the Homebrew Computer Club? I, I don't remember it. I mean, I remember Jim Warren from Stanford. I remember Lee very well. I remember um, um, Gordon French, who's, you know garage it was in, or.
1: You know, Jerry told me something really interesting once. He claimed that the way you did color on the Apple II, he said that you got that idea from one of his engineers at Fairchild. Is there any truth to that whatsoever? Not
0: a bit of truth at all. Here's where it came from. I'm sitting in Atari with my head spinning because I'm going four days and nights on no sleep because Steve needed money to buy into a commune in Oregon. He didn't tell me that but we had to do it in four days and nights. I didn't think I could design a game in four days and nights in the hardware era. I just didn't think I could do it, Did but succeeded. But my head is spinning and out on the factory floor, I saw one of these, all these black and white games and I saw a dot moving left to right, changing color on a a monitor. And I knew they didn't have color monitors and I surmised that they must've had Mylar strips. I couldn't see them, but I found out later, that's what it was. And then I went back to where I was sitting on one lap bench and Steve's wire wrapping my design on the, the other one to my left. And I'm thinking in my head about what is color? And I knew color from analog television. You know, I could just, like I said, I could repair color televisions, everything about them. And green is, is a sine wave of a certain frequency. And a little bit later in time, it's red. And a little later, it's blue. And it popped in my head, wait a minute. What if I put out digital ones and zeros just out of a number? What if I took a number and just put it on the wire, zero, zero, one, one, you know, minus, minus, plus, plus, minus, minus. And if it went up and down at the right rate, I realized inside every color television would think it was color, and yet it was never, color had never been talked about that way in any book. There were, you know, it violated all the mathematics (laughs) and differential calculus to designing televisions could it even work when it's that wrong it's just but i knew it would work and um and i realized that if i had four bits in a number so those 16 patterns some of them would be a little more ones which is higher voltage which is lighter not lighter color and the ones or zeros would be darker colors and they would all be spread around as to where they went up and down in time as to what color they'd be oh my god wow so that was great so it cost us zero dollars since we were putting numbers right out of the computer memory to the television costs $0. And normally of today's dollars, it would cost like $5,000 to create color wow. today's dollars.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That is amazing. It's oh, just amazing. I, I was never assisted by anyone. I never read anything in a book about, you know, micro, this is the first time I'd ever used microprocessors. The first time I'd ever used dynamic memory. First time I'd ever done that. I even designed a floppy disk and I'd never been around disk hardware or software of any type ever in my life. I was just really good at studying the situation, what it needed physically, and picking out very, um, very good combinations of parts uh, to do the job and designing so cleverly I'd use fewer parts than anyone else.
1: My dad was an electronics engineer. We talked about this a little bit on email. He, he, he always told me when I was a kid, and I had an Apple II, it was one of my first computers, and he said, you know, Waz is one of the greatest engineers of all time. He can do amazing things with the fewest numbers of parts. And this is what made you legendary. It's just uh, an incredible thing. Your brain has some sort of insight that seems lacking in other people.
0: Yeah, I did not want recognition for starting personal computers or starting a company. Steve Jobs did, and you need that. Without that, we wouldn't have. You know, that was probably more important. I only wanted engineers to look at my designs and and be so impressed by them. That was what I was designing for other engineers.
1: In the first part of our interview, we talked about how your knowledge of TV and its mechanics helped you develop products at Apple. Now, I'd like to fast forward a little bit into the mid-1980s when you were dealing with TV a lot more intimately as a business. Let's talk about the situation at your house that led to the idea of a universal remote control. What sort of components did you have in your house that needed so many controllers?
0: Most people had, by then, a television and a VCR remotes and if they were the same brand they could kind of work together as it was very efficient but i had the laser disc so i had a third remote control i had the tv system before they had satellite tv so i had a fourth remote control that very few people had and then there was only one hi-fi in the world that used a remote control back then you have to believe ancient technology who made it It bang and olofsson Oh wow! And it was a, a big white thing, had a sticking out from a from a wall. It was a really nice one because you you tap on something and certain lights would turn on red that were the appropriate lights for what your next step might be. Uh-huh. But it had a remote control, so I had five remote controls in my hand, and I'm going back and forth between maybe satellite and laser disc and just television channels, and and thinking, oh my gosh, these things should be able to make them onto one, and that idea grew on me and I was talking to an engineer at, uh, working on the, um, Apple 2C computer. Joe Annis was one of the engineers. He was excited about all these new ideas that were kind of impossible to do with technology, but they were going to be possible someday, like storing digital information and making a computer, your phone switch, switching device, just storing the, the, the signals. So, and, and he, and he got into, uh, the remote control idea. And then I said, you would be able to just play one of your remote controls into it, and it should read the the infrared signal and then duplicate it. That was my idea. I didn't know that there's only a few chips made for remote controls, and all you have to do is simulate the six chips that are made, and you got them all in one anyway. So my idea idea was kind of clever, and we grew the company idea out of that. And uh, how do we build this device? That was the start.
1: So early in Cloud9 history, or CL9, that's the company you started, your first product was called Little Tyrone. Could you explain what that was? Sure.
0: Okay. First of all, we started out, uh, Joe Ennis was the one that came up with the name Cloud9 because there was a Cloud9 restaurant he was familiar with. Or as I lived out there, it must have been me. Well, anyway, we, um, we started working on our remote control, and we didn't want, want—I not I was sick, I had enough remote controls, you had to point them accurately if you didn't point them accurately, your TV might not work. And those sort of things bother me. I want things to always work and be reliable. It's a big part of my life. So can't we have a more powerful transmitter? And we started, we worked with a company that designed that sort of electronics, infrared receivers. They knew infrared receivers and transmitters. And then they basically developed a, a better receiver and a better transmitter. And we got this idea, wait a minute. We could just short circuit things and have this real cheap product that that receives the infrared from your controller, amplifies it and puts it out. You know, blasts it out so strong you don't have to aim it. And you could tape it onto any remote control and then not have to aim it. And it was very low cost, simple, easy device. So we decided to put that out first, and and that was our Tyrone, spelled the Swedish, the Swedish way. T Y R O N.
1: I think it's funny that you were having this problem about uh, 10 or 15 years before anybody else, maybe, maybe even 20
0: years. Well, right when we came out, when we finally came out with that device, you held it in your hand like a today's smartphone. It had two microprocessors in it, a 4-bit and an 8-bit. I programmed one of them. And um, and I mean, it was like a little computer where you had all these buttons, you know, 20 buttons. You could press a button and it could run a program that involved other buttons of other modes even 16 modes times 16 buttons or it could run codes that were known to be certain infrared signals or the ones that it learned because you pointed your remote at it i mean it was a little sophisticated computer
1: and we're talking about the the core the controller of remote electronics it's an acronym Correct. right and there was a 6502 in it right and what was the other processor
0: it was it was some other company's version of a 6502 the other one was a forther from I think Mitsubishi, and it was so cheap, like 50 cents. I did the programming on that, but I'll tell you, my type of type programming is so hard to do on a four bidder. Oh, I won't have the junk. If they have a thousand, you know, a thousand bytes of programming, I'll only want to use um, 80 of them at the most. You know, I I, I actually had to, had to fly out of town to a resort in Phoenix. Nobody knew where I was except my assistant, even my wife. Didn't know where I was because I had to be alone for a week with no interruptions. Because with the fame of Apple, I was just getting too many calls for too many reasons.
1: He said a resort in Phoenix. Now, wasn't there another time when you went to Hawaii to get away? Oh,
0: the second time. The the 8-bit microprocessor was the more important one, doing the overall tasks and putting things together and memorizing them and running a little programming language of its own. And I went to Hawaii, and I have to get my head into the place to start working and the challenger exploded oh man you know and i wound up thinking about it and i wound up just looking out the window at this beautiful ocean over to lanai and i saw at least one whale every day and i just drifted away and i never quite got my head into the place for working i decided you know i want to come back home and hire somebody to do the that processor
1: I was just thinking about the core. It was almost like a pocket computer
0: or PDA. It was ahead of its time. It was just amazing as a computer. I mean, it had a language in it that um, every time you pushed a button, a button had a a program, like a cell in a spreadsheet sort of has a program. But that program could even modify itself. It could modify other of the keys, what their programs were, and itself. I mean, it was really sophisticated. Not only that, you could actually plug in you're a terminal to it. So your computer running a terminal program, I'd plug in my Apple IIc or my Apple IIx or Apple IIe and plug it in and you could actually run all the assembly language, same sort of diagnostic system, all the same commands as the Apple II were built into it. I probably violated something that Apple owned even though I I had come up with it and designed it and invented it before Apple existed. So I don't know how that falls out. (laughs)
1: Uh, Some guy on a forum said they used their core as an alarm clock because it had clock functionality. Sure
0: sure did. You could even say in a core, there were buttons. You could hit the at 2 a.m. button. These are all buttons. At 2 a.m. hour up for daylight savings time. You could actually (laughs) put that as a program. (laughs) You can and there are even ways you could you could you could this complicated thing was so complicated, it was almost impossible, but I did it. I did it on paper. You could actually make it do daylight savings time forever. Wow. That's amazing. It was that advanced, but then again, it was too sophisticated. You know, programmable units like that came about at a later date when there were also soft screens and like the harmony. The harmony. Yeah,
1: the harmony. Mm-hmm.
0: But they you know, even they came up with better formulas by then because we had the internet. You could just tell it what devices you have, and it would configure itself.
1: How many core units did you sell? Do you remember?
0: Um, I don't remember. I think, uh, but the thing is, it was sold for—I don't know, ten to twenty-five years. I don't do years well. By uh, one guy that I basically gave all the parts and all the rights to, just you can keep making them, supporting them, selling them, fixing them, whatever you want. And and I don't remember how many total sets of parts we even we bought. We we just gave them to him.
1: Yeah, when, when CL9 ended, how did you feel?
0: Did it feel like a failure or were you like, oh, it doesn't matter? Well, it felt like it hadn't gone really big and huge. But to me, it was a success because we created the product I wanted to. What happened was the reason you could say it was a failure is that shortly after CL9 came out with this $150 little computer in your hand, the world came out with these little $10, $15 remote controls that kind of knew every. By using the major chips that were sold for remote controls, all you had to do was punch in a code for your Sony TV, a code for your Samuel VCR, and you punch in the right codes and and it would know what, what to emit for certain buttons. And it only had static buttons. It didn't wasn't programmable. You couldn't set them up your way. So it was a different type of device, but it was so cheap. That's really what ruled the market.
1: But your adventure with remote controls never felt like a
0: mistake, did it? It was no, it was a very fun, worthy, worthy um, experience in my life. That uh, project and um, completed by my my the way I define success isn't 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 necessarily business making money. It's making a product that came out good and did what it's supposed to do. How many years did you use one of those
1: core remotes before you gave it up for something else?
0: Um, you know, I didn't use it that many more years because I tended to learn well if i just buy a lot of equipment from you know a laser disc and a and a vcr and a tv or if it was all from the same manufacturer i could usually configure it down to one control kind of does the job that i wanted so there were other solutions so i didn't do it for too long and i ran to some people that did it for i don't know 20 years wow 20 years that's amazing by the way the engineering of our cloud nine products though were there were other key people, an engineering manager, Chuck Van Dusen, Dan Sokol working there. So we had other engineers and programmers hired that really did the, the important work. Whereas in before in my life, almost anything I touched, I did the whole of the engineering, not this time. Yeah. Joe Ennis did a lot of, of even analog contributions, and I would kind of oversee it and know when it was good enough and right enough.
1: Now Dan Sokol, I heard he was at the Homebrew Computer Club. Was that true?
0: Dan was from the Homebrew Computer Club. Correct.
1: And you've worked with him since then on some projects.
0: Oh, very, very close friends. We're very close friends personally, personally socially, politically, everything. Um, let's see. He's moving today to St. Kitts Island.
1: St. Kitts. Huh.
0: Yeah. So he, he managed to get out of the United States.
1: Amazing. Now I heard you want to move to Australia or something like that is that still a plan?
0: I want to it's sort of a plan I cannot do it now because I have such a busy life traveling speaking all over the world you have to be near an airport that's kind of close to places or you'll never you'll never make it.
1: Yeah. That's why yeah that's why it's so hard to contact you you're flying all over the place.
0: Well, not like that. You get When you're flying places, you get way behind on other things. The reason you had trouble contacting me is I have stacked up things of so high a priority that uh, actually I better get back to them now.
1: Well, man, I appreciate it so much. Um, thank you so much for doing this, and um, I guess I'll talk to you later on email. Okay. Thank you so much. Good luck. Bye, Ben. All right. right. Bye-bye, Steve. our first show and man that was fun i would really like to thank steve wozniak for doing this he has always been there for me when i need a reference or to check on the history of something especially with the homebrew computer club and i met him actually back in 2006 at the vintage computer festival and we've been in contact ever since so thanks again steve also if you'd like to support this show Right now, you can do it through Patreon at patreon.com slash edwards. Pretty soon, I'll set up my own special Patreon account for The Culture of Tech. But also, for feedback and other things, send me an email, editor at vintagecomputing.com. Also, you can check out the new Culture of Tech website that I'm developing at thecultureoftech.com. And for Patreon donors, I plan to eventually... Take some of the cutout material from this Steve Wozniak interview. I mean, we talked for an hour and a half. Easy. And give it to you guys. Let you hear it. So nothing's going to be wasted. It's Thrifty Economical Podcast. And so thank you for joining me on this first adventure to document the transition of humanity to an altered state of consciousness. Thanks again. I'll see you next time.